Team, thanks for leading us in worship. It's great. Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We had a great time yesterday. About 20 of us and about 8 children went up to Manchester and uh, spent the day at, uh, uh, at the Manchester Church Building. Uh, it was together. It was a family group leaders meeting. There were you know, others who just wanted to come that, that were there. It was great. And uh, one of the things we did is, after some time together and sharing together, we went over to the John Ryland Museum, all to see a little piece of papyrus about this big. Uh, it's, a, it's a small section from uh, John chapter 18, and it's got about, uh, well, maybe about 22 decipherable words on it, that is if you can read Greek, and th- there it is right there, and what was really kind of cool, this, this is the oldest fragment of a copy of the New Testament. The originals would have been written just a few decades before, but uh, this was uh, a copy and it is pretty amazing just to see it and to think about that for almost 2,000 years this, one, this thing has been hanging around, okay? And uh, uh, it, it was very encouraging. But what encouraged me the most was as you opened up the map to the Ryland Museum, there's this one page that shows the whole museum. And then right in the middle, it just, there's nothing, it doesn't show anything else except where this is. And I just was encouraged by that. That the most important thing in this museum was this little piece of the Bible. And uh, I think the others were too. I, I'm sure as we were trying to explain to people yesterday why we were going to go over and see it, there was some kind of scratching their head. We're going over to see a piece of, uh, you know, ancient paper. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. You know, a little like post-it note from uh, 2,000 years ago. But uh, it is very encouraging just to, to see that and add that evidence. I'd like us to talk about a little bit of a New Year's theme. This is the first time we're back in this venue, and, you know, this is our sort of our stable place of meeting. It's great to see everyone back. I know that there's quite a few ill people. Our son Justin is sniffling away at home right now, and uh, uh, Tammy's sniffling here with us. But, uh, uh, you know, I know that the cold is gripping some, and uh, just really just pray for all those who aren't feeling so well right now, just to uh, really encourage them and, and do what we can to encourage them. But I'd like to talk a little bit about the New Year's and just sort of looking forward into the year. I don't know about you, but I like it when there's a new year. I I like new beginnings. I like waking up in the morning. I like new days. Uh, I I like this idea that, okay, I can just start again. And, uh, you know, it's great to, we talked on Friday evening together as a congregation, just how Jesus started each day by getting some time with God. And uh, that wasn't because he had to, it was because he wanted to. He simply wanted to connect with the most important relationship he had each day. And it's good to, to have times of new beginnings. Some of the most important concepts in Christianity are uh, things that are a little hard to understand. I mean, the idea that that Jesus became flesh, that God became flesh, when you really think about it, for if we if we just imagine it, Jesus could be any one of us sitting right here. Wow! I mean, he could have looked like Derek Edmondson. Okay, I mean, I mean that, that that that's Jesus was in a package just like Derek. Okay. Now uh, I don't want to mean to imply anything. It said he wasn't very good to look at. I didn't mean that. Uh, and Isaiah, I, I wasn't going there. Actually, in that way. I don't think he looked like him. But anyways, the the point being simply this. What an amazing thought that God came down and lived in human flesh. 
You know, we have a God who doesn't ask us to do anything He's not willing to do Himself. And so He actually shows us how to live the Christian life by living it through His Son Jesus. By actually coming down and showing us what true faith looks like. You know, grace is one of those things as well that I think hard for us to understand. Because grace isn't something we grow up feeling a lot of. We can feel a lot of judgment. We can feel a lot of consequence. We can, we can, we learn, uh, you know, in a right kind of way that if there's a wrong action, there's a consequence. And uh, hopefully when there's a right action, there's also a good consequence. You know, but we learn these principles. And this is a legal system. It's a moral system. When there's something right, it's rewarded. If something wrong, it's punished. We understand that. But grace totally contradicts that. So grace is asking us to accept a free gift of forgiveness. And, And believe it or not, I think it's hard to accept. You know, think about just life, even outside of the church, even outside of knowing God. The people that feel the most contentment and fulfillment without having found their true purpose in Christ are people that have found unconditional love. Because unconditional love is so amazing. If you find someone who loves you unconditionally, here's my suggestion, hold on to them. Okay, that, that's a relationship worth holding on to. I, uh, I found a, a woman to love me unconditionally. She even married me, and it's coming up on 28 years. And, uh, you know, I'm, ex- I'm, I'm amazed... But I found a God also who loves me even more. Tammy's love amazes me, but God's love just keeps me wondering. Wow, how much He loves me, what He was willing to do for me. The fact that God offers us forgiveness that we can never deserve, it contradicts most of our experience. It contradicts most of the relationships we have. It contradicts many of the principles that we were brought up by, by our own families, who meant the best for us, intended the best. But God wants us to understand this grace of His. And we just spent some time reflecting on the cross, which really is the greatest statement of that grace. But another concept I think that's hard for us to understand in Christianity is ambition. And I want us to read a scripture where Paul talks about, both about his ambition but also about grace. Let's look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll start reading in verse 1. It says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that He appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born." For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. You know, the gospel is amazing. 
that the Son of God came, took human form, died and was raised on the third day, and is now seated at the right hand of God, and He's inviting us to heaven to be with Him. It is amazing. And Paul understood this grace to be something he didn't deserve. He said in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Well, Paul was talking about being apostle, but I can look at this word and just go, I am the least of Christians, and don't even deserve to be called a Christian. Does anyone here deserve to be called a Christian? Do we deserve to have our sins forgiven? And so we can see the same, we can have the same attitude as Paul here. And he said, I persecuted the church of God. Well, I may not have persecuted the church of God directly, but I lived against the truth of God's words. And I put to death the perfection and image of God that was in me because of my sin. I fell short of what God intended for me. No one made me sin. I decided to sin. I did that. And I appreciate Paul saying over in 1 Timothy that he was the chief of sinners. But that doesn't mean we can say, well, I'm only number two because Paul was worse. I think in the spirit he was testifying to what he truly felt and believed. But I think the example for us is clear too. We should feel the same way. There's no one in this room that I know about their sins the way I know about my own sins. So I could, if I started to try to list all of my sins... I would be take a long time. For some of you, my list would be very short. That'd be nice, right? Some of you don't know very well at all. I don't even know where I would begin. I just assume there's something to be on that list. But we think about ourselves, we know. Paul said, I was the least of the apostles. I didn't deserve to be called an apostle. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And, I, and this is the freeing spirit of grace. I am what I am. I accept myself as who I am right now. I accept what God has done for me. I accept His purpose for me. And, you know, there's nothing more to be said. I am what I am. And this grace was not without effect. Now, this is interesting. He said, I worked harder than all the rest. You know, this acceptance, this grace, this forgiveness, it didn't demotivate Paul. It motivated him. It wasn't, didn't make him complacent. It didn't make him just say, oh, there's nothing for me to do. Just the opposite. I can't wait to serve God. I can't wait to find new ways to use whatever God has given me to bring glory to his name. And this really became an ambition for Paul. Look over in Romans 15 verse 20. Paul says this, Romans 15, verse 20, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. You know, this this motivation that came to him through the cross, it became an ambition. To preach the gospel where Christ was not known. You know, grace is hard to grasp for us because it contradicts legal justice. But I think ambition's hard for us sometimes to take a hold of because it's so easily corrupted. We so easily have selfish ambition. We so easily have ambition, but it's for us to be great. It's for us to be glorified. It's for us to have the attention of people and their praise and their honor. And because of that, we can actually, as we get a little maybe wiser, as we get older, maybe we become a little less ambitious 
because of how dangerous it is to our spiritual well-being. And, you know, the Bible talks about selfish ambition and condemns it many times. But Paul's understanding of grace produced godly ambition to want to do something for God. Let's look a little further. We're going to look at some stories in the life of Elisha. And uh, listen, we'll turn over to 2 Kings chapter 13. Grace is the greatest motivation we could ever have. Grace is a reason to live, to be happy, to be joyful, to plan, to dream. Let's look over here in 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 14 to 20. And we're going to take two little stories out of the life of Elisha and see where people showed ambition and showed where even sometimes their ambition was limited. And so we'll read this together. 2 Kings 13, we'll start in verse 14. It said, Now Elisha was suffering from the illness from which he died. So basically he's on his deathbed. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Now this shows that the king of Israel had some respect for God's prophet, in fact had deep respect for him, and was troubled that, that Elisha was ill and that was, was on his deathbed. And this chariots and horsemen of Israel is, is kind of a description of God's coming to get you. And he's, he's moaning about that, and he's sorrowful about that. But look what Elisha says. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows. And the king did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Now, if you're the king of Israel and you're being told you're going to have this victory, you'd be excited. You'd be fired up. Fantastic. This is all good news. And we see Elisha, even though he's ill, taking a personal interest in the future of Israel and of the king. And then look what happens in verse 18. Then Elisha said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. Elisha died and was buried. Now this next comment has nothing to do with my point, but I just love this verse. It says, Now Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders, so they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. I mean, that's just fun, okay? But my point here is that Elisha, Elisha was there to serve God and to serve God's people. And this was a blessing. He took the, when, when the king took the bow and the arrow and Elisha put his hands on his and pulled the arrow, they to get, together he proclaimed victory. And it was from God. But now he asked the king to do something himself. He just said to the king, you do this. And it's kind of an interesting moment because he says, take the arrows. The king took them. Elisha said, strike the, the ground. And he struck it three times 
and stopped. What was going on? You know, it's kind of, is there some magic number that you strike arrows? You know, I, I don't know what's going on. It was kind of interesting, but we read from Elisha's response that the king didn't show zeal. The king didn't show determination. The king wasn't really getting into it. The king kind of did like three taps and then kind of looked, are we good? You know, what is our response to God's will for our lives? Are we listening to God's will, looking for God's will, thinking, what is it, God, tell me? And and then we're thinking, what's the least I can do? It's another one of our human tendencies. The moment we ever talk about any kind of minimum requirement, for some it becomes maximum maximum effort. You know, whatever, whatever the minimum is, then that's what I'll do. That's not God's, that's what God wants to see in our hearts. That's not what Elisha was looking for. And Elisha responded and said, if you'd have just struck the ground five or six times, there would have been complete victory. You can imagine the king kind of going, bang, 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 trying to sneak in two or three more right there. But you know, that's not what happened. He had his chance to show his response to God's simple direction through the prophet. But he lacked zeal. He lacked an ambition. Jehoash needed his own convictions. And see, we have freedom. We have great freedom in Christ. But our freedom also shows our convictions. We don't have somebody sitting over us telling us every little thing to do. We have freedom. So what are we doing? How are we responding to God? What do we really want to see happen in 2015? Now, that's a question that focuses on us. I want to turn that around and make sure that God is at the center of that question. Look over in James chapter 4. James chapter 4, we'll pick this up in verse 13. In the beginning here, what we see is an example of godless ambition. James 4 verse 13, it says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Now, when you just look at that verse by itself, you kind of think, well, that's a conversation people are having all the time. You know, what can we do to have success? That's happening all around us in the world, all the time. And and people are making plans. But look what James says here, verse 14. Why... Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who does not, sorry, who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. We have this example of godless ambition because God isn't at the center. And then he finishes this passage by saying, if you know the good you should do and you don't do it, that's a sin. That's a falling short. That's not what God wants in your life. So the question is, what is the good that God wants me to do? But see, this takes effort. It takes humility. It takes a listening heart to God. What does God want me to do? What does, what does God have envisioned for 2015? 
You know, we can not even think about this. We can just put this aside. We, you know, God doesn't really expect much in 2015. I'm just going to live life day to day. But if that what happens, that, if that's what we're thinking, if that's how we're living, that's what will also happen in our lives. Sometimes we don't take the time to really ask ourselves, what does God want me to do? What should I be doing? And, you know, sometimes we can fall into a trap. We really love our brother or sister, and they don't seem to be prioritizing. They don't seem to have any plan. And we got kind of anxious about that, and we're thinking, you know, you need to do something. But they don't really believe it in their heart. And trying to get them to do that without them believing it is only going to hurt your relationship. We've got to help them find God's will for their life. If God wills, we will do this or that. You know, Romans 14, verse 5, it's a very awesome chapter, Romans 14, because it talks about how to deal with disputable things in the church. I appreciate the fact that the Bible acknowledges there are disputable things. When it comes down to it, though, what's disputable isn't doctrine, what's disputable is practice. Now, some people believe things, but that's their own personal belief. That's not a doctrine out of the Scripture. That's just their belief. And I think we all believe things. We're not all identical in what we believe. But in Romans 14, 5, in trying to get people to accept each other, to understand each other, it says this, One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now this, was a, this, this is an interesting question, because he's saying, what I really want is everyone to be fully convinced in their own mind. And so each person knows in their heart, what should I do? How does God want me to behave? What does God want me to focus on? You know, this is, a, in, this is about disputable things. This isn't how we should treat clear directive in the Scripture. You know, we have a lot of clear directive, and it's awesome when we have clear directive. Should we go out and evangelize the world? Yes or no? Yes. Why? Well, how do we know that? It's just throughout the New Testament in so many places we know that. Should we forgive each other if we sin against each other? Okay, we, we, can, we can just ask these kind of questions and we know the answer. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart, but encourage one another daily. That's a directive. We need to be in each other's lives. And we need to seek that. We need to invite that. We need to participate in this. Another scripture says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, Hebrews 10, 24. You know, these again, these are directives. You know, what time we meet, that's negotiable. We, We understand life circumstances doesn't allow everyone to be here. But the directive, the goal, what we want to achieve is that we're meeting together. We're encouraging each other. We're in each other's lives. It's the beginning of a new year. And we all have the chance to sort of strike the ground. What are we focusing on? Where are we putting our energy? You know, we all have the same amount of time every day. What are our goals? 
What's our ambition? The first ambition we need is simply to be convinced in our own hearts. To know what God wants for us. Let's look at one other story from the life of Elisha. It's in uh, 2 Kings chapter 4. And we'll pick it up in verse 1. 2 Kings verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a little oil. Elisha said, Go round and ask for all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left them and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God and he said, Go and sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. Now if you picture this story happening, how do you think she felt when she said to her son, Bring another jar and he said, There's not another jar left. I know my first thought would have been, I should have got another jar. I should have got more jars when I had time to get jars. But you know, that's what the the man of God had said to her. He goes, go around and ask your neighbors and don't ask for a few. Well, she did ask for enough. Her debts were paid and her needs were covered. It's pretty awesome. We need need an ambition in 2015 to ask God for amazing things. We need to think about what would really be amazing. How many of us have a neighbor in, in our neighborhood, someone we know that we've been building a relationship with, that aren't yet believers and followers in Jesus of Jesus Christ? Okay, well, yeah, I, I didn't expect to show hands because I know we do. You know, we do, right? <laughs> You know, what's our dream? What, what are we praying about for them? What's, on our, what's our ambition for them? What do we think could happen? You know, we can't make people respond, but we can do our best to persuade them. Paul said, I make it my ambition. 1 Corinthians 9 is all about Paul's ambition. And he says, I'll do whatever it takes to help as many as possible. Come to faith. Look at some statements about God. Psalm 81, verse 10. Psalm 81, verse 10. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Now see, what do we got to do? Just open wide. That's all. Just, I mean... Sometimes we think, oh, it's all about me. It's all the things I got to do. God's saying, just open wide your mouth. See what I will do. But see, it takes faith to open your mouth and trust God. What God is really asking us to do is live in faith each day, to respond to Him in faith. Look in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. 
And the context of this is Israel had now come back to the promised land, but they were being selfish and they weren't giving their tithe to God. Which in the Old Testament, people gave a tenth of what they earned and what they had to God on an annual basis of their harvest, etc. And ten was easy because if you got ten fingers, you can count off pretty much what you're going to give to God. It's pretty easy. Now, some people might think, wow, that's, that's, that's the Old Testament. Glad we're in the New Testament. Well, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you need to give up everything you have. So let's not put a percentage on it. But the point about a tithe that's sort of in principle sound is that you can give a tenth of what you have and still be left with quite a bit. And so they had nine tenths left, but they still weren't giving God his tenth. And look what he says to them in Malachi 3 verse 10. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that, they may, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw out, open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Can you imagine that? You know, this tithing principle is that you would give 10% of what you had. What if it was a giving principle from God's side, and He'll give you 10 times whatever you give? What if it was reversed? Would we think differently about tithing? Would you think differently about that sum if you knew God would give you 10 times what you give? See, what are we playing with here? God God was saying to the Israelites, you don't get me at all, do you? I can bless you. I'm the one that can bless you. Don't hold back from me. Give as I've asked you and I will bless you. Look over in Ephesians chapter 3, 20 and 21. This is one of those amazing, encouraging scriptures in the New Testament. Ephesians 3, 20, 21 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. It says that God is able to do more than we ask or imagine. Now, Now, who's got an imagination here? Okay. How much can you imagine God doing? You know, God can do more than you can imagine. And He can do more than we ask. And this is really a promise. God will do more than we ask or imagine. That's the kind of God He is. But think about this. How easy do we make that for God if we don't imagine much and we don't ask for much? You know, for the congregation, our first two months of this year, we're focusing in on prayer. And prayers are coming in, coming before God. It's just being quiet before Him in one sense, and then also opening up ourselves to Him in another. And prayer is how we connect with God. Are we asking God, God, what do you want in my life this year? Are you imagining what God could be doing in your life this year? You know, I think sadly sometimes our lives get somewhat comfortable. They're not amazingly comfortable, but they're not terrible either. They're kind of okay. And we sort of live in this status quo, and we kind of think, yeah, I don't want to really rock the boat. It would take some effort. It would take some energy to kind of change things. I'll just kind of keep them as they are. 
But where's the glory for God in that? I mean, it's, it's awesome that we're grateful and we recognize God is the one that's blessed us. But God also wants us to step out in faith and live in faith. God wants us to dream, to have expectations and ambition with only one condition. The glory goes to Him. You can't have too big a dreams for God. You can't have too much ambition to do something for God. But the glory needs to go for Him. So where are we? Well, it's time to get specific. And it's funny, if you were at the meeting yesterday, you, you pretty much heard this lesson when I got up and shared yesterday already. You, you just got to repeat. And as I was thinking this morning about what to share with the congregation, I thought, you know, this was just such a good sharing, a good lesson. I wanted to share it with everyone. But what's interesting is this lesson, even how I got it, was part of my New Year's resolution. One of my New Year's resolutions was to listen more to other people's sermons and, li- and ask other people what they're speaking about and teaching about. And so on Thursday, I was talking to an evangelist in our church in Berlin, and I just said, so what's a lesson that you've taught lately that really, you know, really fired you up? Now you just sent me, like, you know, his little short, no- short no- notes, and you basically got his lesson today. But that was one of my decisions of this year. To just kind of get out there and, and read and think and see what other people are, are doing. Where are they focused? And I, and I read through these notes and I thought, this is a great lesson. We need to get specific about what we want God to do in our lives. Now, I'm quite open to the fact to say, God, do what you want. But God wants to work with us. He wants there to be a cooperative effort in our Christian lives. You know, we can say, God, I want my neighbor to become a Christian. Can't you send someone in the congregation over to them to talk to them? You know, does that make sense in that prayer? God, I really want people where I work to to know about Jesus. When is someone going to come and do that? You know, oh God, I want to know the Bible better. Maybe if I just put it under my pillow and sleep on it, it'll somehow like go in. You laugh. When we were in Ukraine in 1992, one of the team members got ill. We were planting the church there. And one of the team members got ill, so we went to a local doctor. And uh, we just, we, it, as far as we understood, it was a doctor. And the person wrote out a prescription. And uh, our, the disciple said, you know, where do I take this? Where's the drugstore? And they said, oh no, it's not a prescription. You need to fold it up and put it under your pillow and you'll feel better in the morning. Yeah, we, we really didn't go for that, okay? You know, we've got to get specific. What are we expecting? And you know, when you think about your life, lots of times the results match up somehow to your expectations. If you don't expect much, nothing much seems to happen. But when you're expecting something to happen, you start looking for things to happen. You look for the opportunities God gives you. You know, growth comes in many forms. And I just listed a few here on on the sheet. Personal spiritual growth, growing in knowledge, character, connection with God, even growing in faithfulness and action. These are things that we can all individually grow in. Congregational maturity, having elders and deacons, teachers, evangelists, 
getting those gifts and, and roles established in the church. Racial, cultural, and cultural diversity. You know, we have good diversity here, but there's still more diversity out there in the city of Birmingham. We need that in this congregation as well. We need specialty pastoral ministries, substance abuse, counseling, grief recovery. We need all of these things. Gifts, identification and development. We need to understand, what can we contribute? Who are we together working as a body in Christ? We need to grow numerically. There just needs to be more people saved. That, that's a need. You know, if that's not the center. One thing about numerical growth. Growing in quantity does not guarantee growth in quality. But I believe when we grow in quality as a Christian, there will always be resultant growth numerically. In other words, it will follow. Because we will be living those kinds of lives that will become productive and effective before God and the results will be there. Local impact through community service. Focused evangelistic ministries. Now I really appreciate, we don't still know Joshua Malunga so well. But he's been going to school down in the center, uh, going to the uh, Birmingham Metropolitan College. And it's just been on his heart. We have to have a Bible talk by my campus. You know, coming down, we, we have one down near the University of Birmingham campus. But he wants one there in town. And I love it when someone's nagging me because they're ambitious to do something for God. You know, that, that's not bad nagging. That's good nagging. You know, it's, it's, it's important because that's just not like, you just don't pull that out of the air. We have to make some plans. We have to put something before God. We have to figure out how to make it happen. And we are planning to do our first one downtown on Thursday uh, after classes. So it's starting. But what's your dream? What's your ambition? Dave Brewster has, you know, and, and Roy too. I don't want to take away from that. But Dave is the one that's on me. Okay, and I won't use that word nagging because it's good again. But Dave has got in his heart, we got to do these events for the marrieds. We need to get some gospel jam happening, you know. And we we got talent, and we've got other friends outside the church that could get together with this. And you know, it's just been on his heart, and I love it when when someone's got that kind of fire, and they just want to make something happen. You know, we've been doing two events for a couple years. Dave's like, can we do three this year? How do you say no to that? No, you can't. It doesn't work, does it? It's like, when there's that kind of zeal to go do something for God, you're just like, let's go! What is our ambition? There's so many things. Now, hopefully, well, you know, don't go home and overwhelm yourself, Okay. Well, let's see, there's like eight points here, and there's a bunch of, you know, uh, you know. But the point is, go choose a few things. They don't have to be on this list. The point is, what is our ambition? Paul's ambition was to preach Christ where Christ was not known. Paul's ambition was, was to be a servant of the gospel and let no one ever take away that claim of his. Because of that, he refused a steady salary. He refused to be married. He made those choices so no one could ever say. I mean, this guy was zealous. And then he would say, and I worked harder than all the rest of them. What was a pretty hard standard that he kept right there. But the point is, it wasn't for his glory. It was for God's glory. 
You know, we have a God who can do more than we ask or imagine. In fact, it says immeasurably more. We have a God who invites us into cooperative effort with Him to to bring this world to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. We have a God who wants to, through our cooperative effort, disciple each other, help each other become more like Christ. Strengthen each other, encourage each other, teach each other. That's what God wants. What's our ambition? And so there is no singular right answer. But the point is, either we are planning, we all have plans, and maybe our plan is just to do nothing. But then you need to pray this prayer. If the Lord wills, I will do nothing. And if you feel good praying that, wow, but amen, okay? If you feel good praying that, I encourage you to open up your Bible a little more. Read a little more. Pray a little more. There's, it's more to it than that. But again, at the basis of it all, it is what God has done for us. He has made this invitation. And He has given us this amazing opportunity. Who gives us 2015? God does. And you know, we, we know from 2014, we know there's no guarantee we'll all be here at the end of 2015. One thing we learned in 2014 was some lessons on mortality. But see, the fact is, 2015 can be given to God. So I ask you simply, do this with yourself. You know, I know we we break up into smaller groups throughout the week and spend time sharing with each other and, and just opening up the scripture and praying. I really encourage you, talk about this. What do you believe God would like to see happen in your life and the lives of others around you in 2015. What is your conviction? What is your prayer? And then lay it before God. Let's pray together as the worship team comes up and takes their place. Our Father and mighty God, we are so grateful that that you are the God who gives and gives and gives. And Father, there is no one like you. And Father, just thank you that you have opened up opportunity for us. Father, I pray for each person here that they'll understand that wherever they're at in the relationship with you, that there is the possibility to move closer, to move deeper, to appreciate more greatly who you are and what you have done. And Father, I pray that this will be a year of growth for us as a congregation. But fundamentally, at the center of that is that we will grow closer to you. That we will grow in our Christ-likeness. That we will be transformed because of a deepening knowledge of your Son, Jesus. Father, I thank you that we can work together on this. I thank you that we're not alone. I thank you that we have the support of our brothers and sisters. Father, I pray for those who are visiting with us. I know some are studying the Bible with the thought of becoming your followers, becoming disciples of Jesus. I really pray that this is the year that they are baptized, that they surrender their life to you completely. And Father, I pray for anyone who's feeling weak or disconnected in some way. I I pray, Father, that we can be a strength to them, each one of us, and really help them. Father, I pray that we can be the pe- your people who live for your will. 
And Father, help us to know what is right and help us to make the decision to do the good we ought to do. Father, we thank you and we praise you. And it's Jesus' name we pray. Amen.